Hi, this is Jakob Markort. And uh, this is Lenny. And you tune in to the You and a Machine podcast. How are you, Lenny? Oh, I'm good, Jakob. That's the uh, first podcast we're doing for, for the new year. I know. It's frightening. Um, it's February already. Man. It is. So we were, we were slacking a bit. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully um, we're kicking this off with, uh, with a range of topics that we're going to discuss this year. Um, unfortunately, I would have loved COVID to be over and that it shouldn't be even in state of mind. But unfortunately, it seems... It's still going to be with us for a little while, um, but that's okay. Yeah. In many ways, it feels like 2021, it feels like we had a couple of days of eating too much, uh, but in many ways, it still feels like 2020. Correct. Um, but yeah, there definitely is, starting off this year, definitely is a, a renewed sense of optimism with, uh, or a sentiment of optimism when you speak to just different people. Uh, we've received the first batch of uh, vaccines. Um, I think we, I think we, we're definitely going to see a little bit of recovery in many ways, in many sectors, in many industries. So uh, we, we're looking forward to a bullish year, and, and hopefully we can see some of that turned around, or some of the damage that's been done last year turned around. Definitely, uh, that's been so devastating for many people. Right, so we've got an exciting couple of uh, podcasts and features coming up. Uh, we're going to delve into a series of the future of. Uh, we're going to have just different conversations with people in uh, the brewing, uh, food and beverage. Um, I think we're going to do water and wastewater. I'm just going to say water. Again, there isn't no such thing as wastewater. There's just water that's being wasted. Um, and the idea with the, the future of is really to get a sense from people in the know and on the, <clears throat> on the floor and on the ground in those industries, just to get a sense of how much has changed um, and what they look forward to in, in the future in terms of technology and efficiencies of making things better. We also, starting today, we also want to kick off the year as we typically do, uh, although it's already February. Uh, we want to kick off the year with just a, just a bit of a view of trends, um, maybe the impact of COVID again last year and the way of work and how we work as teams and how we implement solutions and technology has changed. But just get a sense of what we can expect from um, different areas of, of manufacturing, um, some of the trends that we can expect for for, for this year and, and obviously going forward. And I think I think the topic that we've got today actually falls into some of the series that we ended up last year, where we had conversations with Walker around um, machine learning and the unit, unified architecture. And one of the outcomes of that series was that OEE is still the metric of choice that you should definitely be implementing and have in your manufacturing environments. And I think we couldn't think of anyone better to have this conversation with than, than obviously Gerard Kreef. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So we, we today we're chatting with Gerard Kreef. Um, I'm sure that um, our listeners here in South Africa, many of you have uh, know Gerard well, um, have met him before, at least heard of him. Uh, Gerard's a bit of a bit of a legend, I think, in the MES um, world of space in South Africa. So Gerard is the divisional manager PM in, and C at Iritron. Uh, he is also the vice chairman of the board for MISA Africa and also um, a MISA board member at large for MISA uh, EMEA in uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa. Um, so Gerard, welcome to the Human Machine Podcast. It's a, it's it's fantastic to be chatting with you. I look forward to the conversation. Thank you very much for that uh, great introduction. Um, you know, my, my headset almost broke 
before my head swelling that much, you know. <laughs> you guys really know how to talk one up, right? No, it's facts. It's facts. I think we, certainly for myself and a lot of other people, you know, if we're looking for an opinion or a view or guidance, I think you are very often the, the first name to pop up when it comes to anything in yes. Yeah. So, um, Thank you very much. Yes, yeah. just, just we, we're probably going to have a lot of three-letter acronyms uh, over the next couple of minutes. Uh, we're going to try not to do that. So MES is, is obviously for, if, if you're not that familiar with different disciplines, there's obviously manufacturing execution systems. And yeah, we, we really want to chat with Farah today and just get his overview of, oh, I mean, there's so many buzzwords, next-gen MES, MES and digital twin, um, and really just get a, a lay of the land and Gerard uh, can maybe just canvas for us what that area of, of um, industry looks like at the moment and how important MES still is or is for industry 4.0. Uh, but yeah. before we do that, Gerard, I, 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 don't, I don't know this. Um, I, I mean, I know you and I've known you for a long time, but how did you get into this, this what we believe is one of the sexiest industries uh, that <laughs> we have? But how did you enter the industry? Where did your journey in this world start? Um, Jaku, yes. I started off as a as an engineer, working at uh, the then Newcore, which is today Nexa. Wow. During my during my studies, and uh, I got a bursary from them, and then as soon as well, then they started with the layoffs or downsizing, right sizing, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> And I then and they said, well, you know, if you if you find another job, it was voluntary. So if you find another job, you don't need to pay back your student loan. Okay. So I said, well, that sounds good to me. And uh, I left, joined a pharmaceutical company, worked in a fine chemicals plant making active ingredient, aspirin and uh, paracetamol, etc. And this was formal, and, uh, right? This wasn't uh, backyard fine chemicals. No, no, no. That, it was a big, it was a, yeah, it was, yeah. It's, well, you know, funny story. <laughs> we actually, we, we actually did get a bloke that came in looking for a specific compound. And uh, we researched it, we made it, and... Uh, then we got then raided by the, the police. Name was. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Well, it was actually one. It was one derivative away from Mandrax. Oh, wow. Okay. So um, we didn't see the connection, but uh, I mean, the guy, the guy bought tons of the stuff, um, and we were making money hand over fist because you know we were making it for like one buck, selling it for ten, um, and. But the but the actual value um, of the purified substance was actually a thousand. You can call so it we thought we were making value. a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed that Lenny didn't ask you where you studied. You know that's that's usually Lenny's, that's usually Lenny's first uh, first point of interest when it comes to to background and and, and study. Yeah, I studied at Vol University of Technology. Okay, all right. So, so on a boat. Yeah, so, uh, they were the only the only <laughs> university uh, or the only Technicon at the time um, giving chemical engineering okay. uh, discipline. Oh, that's interesting. 
Yeah, yeah, normally, normally if it's not text, it's text of next, so yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have loved, but uh, you know, I got a I got a bursary to go to the Technicon, so okay. um, I, I took that. Um, yeah, so I started off in a in a chemical plant opening and closing valves. Took me about a year to kind of learn the insides and the outsides of the plant. Then I trained somebody up to do my job. Then I sat around for about three months, twiddling my thumbs, reading books. <laughs> then I went to my boss and said, listen, yeah, I'm bored. I need something. I need a challenge. Um, and I did that another two, three times uh, in the same company. Worked, stayed there for 10 years. Um, left to do environmental consulting. So I finally ended up as the um, total quality and environmental management manager wow. for for the pharmaceutical facility and uh, then I went and did consulting on my own for about a year after that I the problem with that was you know I was a I was a about a decade too early yeah um, you know because you know the environmental or the greenies are only coming to rights now. Absolutely, yeah. But, uh, you know, 20 years ago, they only started talking. It was something that happened in the U.S., hmm. not in South Africa. So that's why I then went and joined a company called Proud Food Consulting, similar to McKinsey, and uh, stayed there for 18, for about 18 months, worked in the U.S., um, as well as in South Africa. And I then decided, well, you know, where's the best place to be? And that's in automation because I know, you know, if you're a plant manager, what it feels like to get a call one o'clock in the morning and to, tell you that there's no, yeah. to tell you that there's no milk um, <laughs> you know, um, and to guide people through the process of fault finding uh, pneumatic systems and relay syst relay logic systems, etc., over the phone. Mm -hmm. So uh, automation sounded like a great place to be, mm -hmm. and yeah, that's kind of how I joined in the. The MES kind of environment, uh, automation MES, and I've been there for twenty years now. Yeah, pretty much directly from your studies, straight into a very specialized manufacturing world and environment. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I love manufacturing. So the the, the problem that and the reason why I kind of left as soon as I could um, from Nexa was they a research facility. And, you know, with any experimental process, you have to repeat the same thing seven times to get, you know, valid, a, valid, a valid result. Yeah. And making the same mistake seven times <laughs> just didn't work for me. Yeah. Um, you know, then you change one little thing and then you make the same mistake again seven times and then you change another little thing until it's ultimately or finally something works. So, uh, yeah, I decided that's not for me. I'm going to go into production where I can actually see stuff happening. Um, and I love manufacturing. 
from yeah. mining right through to pharmaceuticals. Yeah, no, for sure. That's that's how we know you. We know you. We know you as a as, as somebody with love for for the industry and the technology and a passion for it. And it definitely yep. shows in all the good work that you you um, and and Lisa have been doing and and making sure that that awareness and that education gets out. And I think that's a quite an important piece because you would probably know more than anybody that you know in our world there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of you know in certain cases even even poor experiences with with what has been labeled MES. Um, you know whether it's yeah. expectations or and and you know you mentioned. MES to certain people, and the immediate thing is that comes to mind is something that is out of the box, but heavily customized with a massive yeah, price, price tag, tag uh, that's yeah. rolled out over nine years. Kind of, you know, not, not quite yeah. nine years, but that's that's very often the perception that a few people have, um, and you're probably closer than than anybody to to understand why that is. Well, yeah, and you know the the, the problem with that is. The people with a little knowledge and a little experience, they have that view. Mm. And the reason that they have that view is because when they started on the journey, they had a one project view. Mm. So they said, well, if the project is finished, we have MES. So if we implement OEE, we have MES. And they don't basically look at the bigger picture. What am I actually trying to achieve in my factory? What do I need to achieve that? Mm. Right? And then do a whole process of smaller projects. It will still probably take nine years, but if you know you're in for a nine-year stint or a three-year stint, mm. um, it doesn't come as a surprise where if you think it's a six month project that turns into a one year project and then you still don't have everything you want, that comes as a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of one of the, one of the things where we try to educate uh, via MISA that, you know, whatever you do in your factory needs to make or needs to be a part of a, long-term integrated solution vision. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So you have to have a strategy to actually do that. Otherwise, you kind of will end up, like a lot of companies, with silos of speciality information um, and a integration nightmare. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. that's, why, that, that's why there's a lot of people and you know that's why Walker talks a lot about the, the the unified architecture, is because legacy gives us those silos of information, and the one train of thought is well, replace it all by one suite of products that's already tightly integrated. Um, which is one way to do it, right? But that's a rip and replace exercise and that comes at a huge cost. Or the other train of thought is, well, let's go and implement the unified architecture and just connect all these things to the unified architecture so they can communicate with each other easily. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I remember that from, from the MISA course I did with you is 100% is you just don't simply go and rip out an MEA suite and replace it with something else. Yeah. Um, and, and to your point, normally what we see as well is, yes, after the nine years, then some, some guy comes and he looks at what the implementation is and they say, Yo, I spent so much money on the software suite and I'm only using the smallest little portion of what that suite is available to actually implement. And I think that's a big misconception that people have is it's almost this massive hammer for the small nail that you need to whack into the, to the wall kind of scenario. And, and it's to your point, it's because we spread so long to prove one little piece of value and after the nine years, oh goodness, we only have a very small little piece of to, to show for that actual capability of the entire software suite. Yeah, correct. And in a lot of cases, because it's not integrated, so it doesn't come to into its own as a as a total solution. Correct. Gareth, one thing that, that I remember way back when is it's almost it feels to me that NES suites and software or you know these there's these kind of cycles that it goes through. One day you need a solution that's heavy customizable, then there's a new buzzword about no, 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 the MEA solution must be a little bit more, more configurable rather than coding. So it must be out of the box, just tick a few things and it needs to give you the functionality. And it almost feels to me that we're back um, with a little bit more kind of customizable um, approach. Um, obviously, open source software and database technology and stuff that's now also freely available, um, you know, has that kind of mentality from, you know, I can customize my MEA solution just like I want. Um, why is it that it seems that MES is trying to become this configurable thing, but then when you try to apply it to a certain industry or a certain scenario, then it's almost like, oh, no, no, this is not going to work. We have to customize this whole thing. Is it just an understanding and an education process? Or what have you seen for the ratio between out-of-the-box, just ticker thing versus this whole massive behemoth you know, customization effort that, that normally people have in their mind when they talk about an Indian product. Yeah, and together with that is obviously, sorry to interrupt you, and together with that is obviously also a whole team of people that has to support it from all over the world. Um, and I mean, that, that does seem less than ideal for something that is agile, flexible, uh, you know, easy, easy to do. Um, and, and maybe that's what scared people off. Well, you, you, you're right, <clears throat> but uh, I think to, to uh, Lenny's point, um, what I've seen is that where you have to do a lot of customization is when you pick a product that's not necessarily built for a specific industry or industry sector or niche industry. You know, it's like, can you, can you run your company finances um, using a SCADA system? Well, yes, with a lot of customization, you can do that, right? But is it the right tool? Well, probably not. Right, you'll rather go for, you know, some ERP type of solution for that mm. than a, than a SCADA system, and the other way around. You know, can you use the ERP system to run your plant? Yeah, with a lot of customization, you can do that. 
Um, the problem that that I've seen, and I, I still come across that quite frequently, is where people actually do that. They take the they take the ERP system, they customize it to run the plant, and then they're locked in forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they cannot, you know. Even though I mean, I talked to a client the other day, um, the ERP system and MES system is integrated. It was it was developed thirty years ago, and in a language I've never actually heard of before. So you know, it's yeah. that old. Yeah. Um, so you know, you can do that, but it's not necessarily the right thing to do. So will there be customization? Yes. Okay. Yeah. What yeah. is the extent of the customization? It depends on how suited the package that you that you selected is to the business requirement. Yeah, so it's it's fit for it's fit for purpose and best fit. Hundred percent. You and have to you have to go fit for purpose. Yeah, yeah, no definitely. You know, and, and like I say, and, and you know, always remember it's fit for purpose for the long term strategy. Yep. Not fit for purpose for the current project. Yep. And, you know, we see people make that mistake often where they choose something to do OEE and then because that's the current need, but they didn't look wider. So they did not look at scheduling. They did not look at material tracking. They did not look at warehouse and stock takes. Um, you know, they they did not look at the rest of the production requirements. So when they then want to do the next project, then either they have to go and buy a different product suite, mm. or they have to say, well, how are we going to customize our OE solution to do these things as well? And that's where you get massive customizations. Yeah. Kara, these people that you're speaking—I mean, you obviously interact with with a lot of people and a, a lot of a lot of customers, and you you've got a very good sense of the the needs and the challenges that these people are facing. Um, when we talk about these people, I mean, after all, it, it is it, these people are the ones with the vision uh, that drive the project, uh, that own it, um, that have either the skills or the experience to understand what is required. Um, and, and make it successful. How, how do you find that currently in from a South African context? Um, you know, we are all very familiar with um, just a number of, of people and engineers that have uh, that have departed and have left South Africa, specifically um, uh, relocated. Do you think that is um, currently having an impact in terms of how those things are perceived and how the value is attached? Yes. So one of We've got two, in my mind, we've got two big and major issues in South Africa. The one is kind of the aging workforce, right? Mm-hmm. So the baby boomers, um, they retiring and they have not managed to transfer their knowledge and experience into a system so that the next people can actually take over and continue, right? So a lot of that information, because, you know, they used to paper, is either in paper or in their heads. So we're losing those skills 
And the only way to basically entrap that before it's lost forever is to systemize it in a some way or the other. Yep. So you're so, talking about the tacit knowledge that, you know, in your head, uh, you're not necessarily ever going to write it down or share it unless you ask or forced to do it. Yeah. Correct. You know, yeah. and let's face it, if you if you are the training or if you're training your replacement, you can do the best job that you can ever do, but you'll only transfer about 60% of what you actually know. Because if something doesn't happen, something doesn't come up, while you're training the person, you're not going to train him how to react to that adverse event. And that's one of the things that <clears throat> we, we often forget is, you know, we train people in this is the process, but we don't train them in, but what happens if there's something that's out of the ordinary? What if there's an adverse event that happens? How do we react? Because if we keep on following the process, we may blow up a plant or kill somebody, mm -hmm. right? So what do we do? And that's why people have um, safety drills and evacuation drills, et cetera, uh, in companies, because if there's a fire, you have to train people what to do. So you do that on a frequent basis, and then people know, well, if that adverse event occurs, this is how I need to react. We don't do that for our production processes. We don't train people what to do when things go wrong. We only train them what to do when things go right. That and that's what I'm, what I'm talking about, you know, when, when, we, when we're talking about the aging workforce is we're losing those skills, those um, tribal knowledge that sits in people's heads. So that's one problem. That's more a global problem. Uh, but South Africa has the same problem. Um, and then associated with that is we also have the situation where that our culture over the years have changed. Historically, people stayed in a job for 40 years. Yeah, yeah. And they practiced the same job for, and they became specialists in that job over a 20, 30-year period. These days, people... You know, young people come out of university, they want to become a manager within two years, right? And they expect to perform as well as somebody that's been in that job for 20 years. Mm. So the, 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 the kind of uh, instant gratification culture that yeah. we currently experience throughout the world is as a result, well, results in people not having the ability to do the job in the most efficient manner because they don't have the experience. Yeah. So if we don't automate some of that, then there's a problem. Now, in South Africa, we've got, to Lenny's point, the issue where we have skilled employees leaving the country that – so we're getting um, – so there's a scarcity of people that actually knows what's going on. Now, they may not necessarily be kind of a baby boomer, but they've got certain skills. And what people are doing about that 
is they're saying, well, you know, we used to have a boiler specialist and a turbine specialist and a water purification specialist on each one of our sites. But we don't have that anymore. We can't afford to have three specialists on one site. So we are going to build a centralized control room or a monitoring center. You know, people call it different things. So it's either a central control room or a central central monitoring and diagnostic center. And they bring names. <laughs> yeah, well, it is fancy names, yeah. Um, so they bring people together. So they only need you know, say one specialist. So instead of having, if you have <clears throat> 10 different sites, each with a boiler, you only need one boiler specialist centrally hmm. to diagnose what's going on in each of the 10 plants and then talking to the operator and saying, you know, do you know that your boiler is showing this behavior? The way to rectify that is by doing X, Y, Z. So people are doing that, and I mean, some of the bigger companies are actually doing that, um, getting people together in a central central place where they can actually manage a fleet instead of a plot. Absolutely. I, I love that idea. And we one of the podcast episodes that we have scheduled coming up is with a, a global uh, beer brewing manufacturer. And they've, they've done exactly that. Um, and, and the whole concept is that the entire team, that in, everybody that's relevant in either decision-making or learning or overall outcome all sit together. Uh, and it's a yes. fascinating new way of looking at it um, uh, and probably difficult for, for a lot of people, difficult to, to, to get used to that um, kind of environment where everybody share the same space to solve problems together, to learn together. But that is definitely seems like uh, definitely seems like the the way of the future. Yeah, and there's a there's a lot of companies actually doing that. So I'm aware of the the company you're talking about, um, but there's others as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's one of those things that's starting to come online faster than it used to. Yeah. So everybody wanted you know, kind of controlling its own area. So, you know, we started off with, we've got a set of boiler controls and we've got a SCADA system or a DCS system to control our boiler. And then we've got another system to control um, our evaporation uh, circuit. And we've got a different uh, different control system for our digester. But people, are, well, then people said, well, actually this doesn't work because they don't intercommunicate and we have to rely on the on the on the operators so let's make a central control room for the plant we're now taking that one step further and we're saying let's make a central control room for our fleet of products uh, or a fleet of plants and not for a plant so yeah. i think it's a, it is an evolution of you know learning and seeing that you know, we cannot get the best efficiency out of our plants if we have to have a lot of specialists in each one of our plants. 
Yeah. In South Africa, it's doubly it's doubly a problem because we do we are losing specialists at an alarming rate. Luckily for us, though, I think I think something that helps us tremendously with this is that uh, I think technology also actually caught up a little bit. <laughs> um, well, yes. I, I remember when I uh, did the trial, I'm reverting back to the NISA training that I did. Um, you know that that whole concept that you speak about creating this uni unified architecture. So you, you kind of, in the training you reverted to, you just wrap, you wrap your solution into something that, that creates like a, a service bus architecture for unified architecture. You don't need to rip and replace um, and, and completely overall it. You just need to wrap it to form to that standards. And I do believe that that open standards are, luckily for us, open standards is now a little bit more adopted. Um, there's a lot of technologies that support OPC UA. There's a lot of technologies that support normal SQL query language to get data out of their solutions. There's a lot of technologies that's starting to adopt MQTT as an open standard. There's Correct. cloud hosting solutions is actually becoming affordable and, and it's not, people are not afraid of it anymore that there's this thing sitting in the cloud and pushing data to it and, and you know, it's it's gone. So I I, I think that, luckily for us as South Africans, yes, we've got a massive brain drain, but luckily for us, technology caught up that we can actually relatively easier and quickly start implementing these rocks or you know, central operation centers that we've got. Correct. And I, I can tell you if uh, technology wasn't as kind of caught up as it is, this pandemic would have had a much worse effect on everybody. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's especially during this time where so many of those things are we're just super critical. Very, very Correct. Yeah. You know, and if we, if we look at prior to COVID, I think, you know, I, I probably had in total, I don't want to lie, but, you know, I think He's maximum... Done. 10, 10 team Zoom Google Hangout meetings in my life. Yes. And the, when COVID hit, it was like 10 meetings a day. <laughs> you know, so, um, and, and I think it was, and I don't believe that that is ever going to go away because it is a lot more efficient to have a meeting where you don't have to get in a car, drive for an hour, have a meeting with somebody for half an hour, and then drive an hour back. Right? You can actually have a meeting. You can sit in your office, log on two minutes before the time, have your half an hour meeting, and you're back in your office immediately. So I don't think that that is going to go away. That's probably here to stay. And in the MES world or in the... Uh, execution world of of, of uh, manufacturing. We looking at COVID and the ability for a let's say for example a, 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 a beverage manufacturer the ability to very quickly uh, change lines recipes change output. Um, the I'm not sure how much of COVID has disrupted the way that some of these companies do business given changes from market demands, people wanting to stock up, as an example, uh, because they're worried about a, a two-day lockdown and that increase in demand. Um, yeah. The ability to not have your entire team be at the manufacturing site 
um, and uh, and being present and, and and working, but maybe having to do that remotely. Do you think that these most of these organizations and systems in place were able to easily adapt and change, um, uh, force change, um, or do you think some of them struggled with what they had in place? I yeah, I believe most people struggled, and that's one one of the reasons why we're seeing a shortage of certain products or raw materials. Mm. And, you know, if you, uh, I just read a interesting study by PwC and they're saying that this, the, the um, COVID has basically changed the way that people think about the supply change. So, they used the the. They used to say, "Well, let's go global, right?" Uh, and what they're saying now is, "Well, we have to go local, right?" So it's from globalization to globalization. Um, so we're insourcing a lot of the stuff. We are automating a lot of the things. So you know, why did U.S. manufacture go to China? because it's cheaper to produce in China. What they're doing now is they're automating a lot of those human processes where you, that humans used to do. Um, so they're taking the human out of the equation, and that now makes it affordable to still manufacture within the U.S., and we see the same thing in, you know, Germany and Europe, etc. So it's going from, we used to think that, you know, if we outsource a lot of stuff to other countries, it's going to be cheaper. Now they're saying, well, let's automate and bring it back. Because if I actually make it in China and I sell it in the US, right, my supply chain planning needs to be on point if something happens you know it's a long lead time so it's a 12 week lead time or a three month lead time to get it from there to here so if i bring it back if i insource it if i bring it back in country then i can be more agile i yeah. can respond faster and so we're seeing a global trend moving in the direction of kind of bringing manufacturing closer to the market again. Yeah. Yeah, nothing like a, nothing like a pandemic to poke a few holes in your supply chain. Um, <laughs> 100%. 100%. Um, you know, and <laughs> if, you look at, if you look at, you know, in South Africa, we've got a major issue with, uh, with steel correct. at the moment. Yes. There's a shortage of steel. Um, not that I know what they actually do with steel these days because, you know, there's no, no buildings going up anymore. But, uh, you know, there's a, there's a shortage of steel. Steel comes at a big, at a big, big cost at the moment. Yeah. Right? So some of the um, kind of third-tier suppliers are struggling to make ends meet because not only is their markets depleted um, or their markets have gone away as a result of the pandemic, pandemic, but also there's a shortage of raw material. Mm. So they have to pay more to get the raw material, so their profit margins shrink, and then the demand is also down. 
you know, so there's a lot of them that's in trouble. Yeah. Now, interesting. Um, it, it also, exactly to this point, um, it also forces, well, I've read a few articles about it that forced companies out of their traditional uh, comfort zone. Um, I read an article about a, a car manufacturing uh, company that supplied, you know, the panels to the automakers. Yeah. And what they've done is they realized that they're actually not in in making panels business. They're actually in in making steel business. So they actually bought out old steel mills in country to supply yeah. them directly with material. Um, yeah. So, so taking your normal business operations. Look at your supply chain, and then also identify you know potential uh, opportunity to actually do that. To say, oh well, let's just make our own steel supply just to us. So we should make our supply yeah. chain a little bit tighter. Yeah. So that, yeah, that's yeah, a possible I mean, thing that actually can that can come out of something like that. Nine hundred percent to your point, bringing manufacturing back. I mean, if cool. I drive, if I drive from the airport to Pretoria, my goodness, the amount of warehouses on that road—it's it's actually scary. <laughs> yes, no, it is. Yeah, and, and and there's there's manufacturing there, but actually very little um, from a ratio perspective to yeah. just plain warehousing. Correct. Yeah. Cool. So we've spoken a little bit about um, the challenges. I, I want to chat a little bit more about the market dynamics. Um, what do we call it? I want to call it trends and insights. That's so generic. Um, let's call it um, some of the opportunities maybe um, that that you see. For manufacturers right now, given the technologies that are available, uh, given the advances in IoT and comms, um, what are some of the opportunities that you can see? And maybe, if you don't mind, expanding a little bit around the opportunity for MES and something like power generation or uh, water and wastewater, uh, where very often food and beverage, you know, it was said to be a very specific. Um, application in a specific type of, of manufacturing, but there yeah. are a lot of instances where it could be very beneficial to, to other parts of, of manufacturing and, and industry as well. So yeah, if you can maybe give us give us an idea of some of the opportunities available in, in the MEA space at the moment. Well, these are a lot of things that you can do and each different industry's got specific requirements so you know from my from my time in the pharmaceutical industry i know you know hazard analysis critical control points is a major thing that is part of good manufacturing practices um you know ensuring that there's a hygiene check between or in uh, yeah between changeovers of product Right, so that you don't get contamination, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's a whole lab process, all of that. But that is a kind of something that's done in the regulated industries where you can actually affect people's health. So pharmaceutical and food and bev. Um, cleaning process is another one. But if you move to other types of manufacturing, other things basically become important, like Kanban, right? Uh, like work in progress tracking, like finite capacity scheduling, like real-time tracking, uh, stock take, you know, uh, automating the stock taking process or reducing the time it takes you to do stock takes. Um, 
that's more a general thing that is for general type of manufacturing. If you if you go to uh, metals and mining, right, you've got you know survey analysis, your valuation analysis, your recovery calculations, your mass balancing and recovery uh, tracking over over your different plants. So depending on what type of industry, there's always a slight variation in terms of what they need. One of the things that is almost always a requirement is the need to capture and visualize real-time data. Um, there's always a need to capture downtime and the reasons for the downtime. There's always a need for root cause analysis, whether it be a process problem or an equipment problem or a person problem, but you know, a way to find out after the fact why something happened. One of the things that's recently kind of starting to become more prevalent and people are starting to look for for solutions is to go from reporting what happened, right? So that's where we that's where we all started with the morning report. What happened yesterday? When we talk about, you know, the brew, brewing companies, central control room, et cetera, et cetera, is what is happening now so we can make the appropriate decisions. The next step is where we actually start getting predictive, where we can actually say, based on some statistical process control, based on machine learning, there's a high likelihood that this process are going to ex going to deviate from its quality requirements in half an hour so take some take a corrective action now to prevent that from happening so we're starting to prevent things now and that is something that is possible with most manufacturing industries, whether it be mining, general manufacturing, food and beer, pharmaceutical, as long as you have data available and you have real-time data available to you, you can start implementing machine learning type of applications. You can start doing smart stuff with, with the data that gives you the predictions. So you can start detecting anomalies. You can start detecting things that the human mind would not necessarily correlate um, to tell you something is going wrong. So that is, I believe, something that is going to be more and more um, in the foreground in the years, the next few years to come. Just most companies. Sorry, most companies have gone from reporting to what's happening now, and they're saying, well, the next step is to do the predictive stuff, to do the um, data science stuff. Mm -hmm. 
to predict what is going to happen. So, and we also have to think of it in this way. So, if we're talking about a specific piece of equipment, we can identify using machine learning tools and advanced pattern recognition and AI, we can kind of identify when it's going to break, right? Based on, you know, the patterns and the algorithms and things. So that is one, but that is only looking at a piece of equipment within a bigger plant. If we can also start drawing together that piece of equipment, you know, is not doing what it should be doing. Um, and if we if we extrapolate that, it means that in two hours' time, the machine right at the end of the line is going to have quality problems. Right now, a good example of that is, I'm not sure if you guys have heard about uh, data point clouds. Um, you can enlighten that. <laughs> yes, I'm not, not going to put down any money on that. But no. <laughs> <laughs> right. So basically, what that is is when you when you in the when you measuring dimensions. So, for instance, in the automotive industry. Okay. So when you measuring dimensions, because remember, you build a chassis, and then the body needs to fit on the chassis. And they've got reasonably strict um, kind of measurements to make sure that everything fits together. Then the door needs to fit onto, onto the body, right? But if the door is a little bit too big, then the door doesn't close properly. If the door is a little bit too small, right, then you get a gap. And, you know, <laughs> you guys probably read the stories about Tesla's cars that, yeah. you know, I was just That's, thinking of that battle gap. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All right. So basically, what 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 the, the the concept around it is, you take the door and there's a number of measurement points on the inside of the door and on the outside of the door, right? And you basically build a kind of three dimensional model of the door using those points. So, and then you compare it against the digital twin, right? What should it be? And then you get the deviation, mm. right? So that's number one. So does it, is it within spec, right? So, you know, a, a, a difference of, you know, 50 microns or whatever could be acceptable or maybe two millimeters, whatever the, the case may be, right? So there's, there's a specification, so it needs to be bigger than this and smaller than this, okay? Now, that's step one. So now you, you, you build that 3D model, and because it's only points, right, it, it's a cloud, but in, on a 3D model, you can actually see what the points, and you can basically twist it and, you know, whatever. So that's a data point cloud. So it's a cloud of points showing, say, for instance, a door in a 3D model. So there's, this is the standard. This is the door. If you then take that further and you say, okay, but this door, let's take a hypothetical situation. This door um, on the bottom is two millimeters 
bigger than it should be, then you take that one and you look for a body where the the space the door needs to fit in, right, is two millimeters too big, right? And then you match those two parts because then it's going to be a, a better fit than trying to fit a small door <laughs> in a big door space or a big door in a small door space. Sounds like you're a hammer, baby. <laughs> sounds like I need a hammer. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, so obviously Tesla didn't implement that yet. But, you know, it's, yeah. it's things like that where people are saying, what can technology do for me? So I used to be, I used to have this drawn out on a piece of paper. And as long as it fits, Right, or as long as it's in spec, all the points, it's a go. Now they say, well, let's put it in a data point cloud. Let's look at it, see where the deviations are, and then see if we can match that deviation with a different part that also has a similar but opposite deviation so that they are actually a perfect fit. And obviously, very important to to that is obviously you still need you still need the metric at the end to compare it against, right? So, I think a lot of people also think that, geez, if I go this machine learning route, then all of my traditional KPIs, and I'm going to you know take OEE as an example, you know, necessarily then why do I need this OEE? But it's still very relevant because you still need to compare back to that KPI to say, hey, is this thing actually working or not? Hundred percent. Uh, and it's and there's that typical you know crawl before you walk kind of scenario, um, and and there's very merit still in the normal KPIs and metrics mm. that we need to get in place before we can go to these very high tech kind of solutions. But the tech is available; it's there for us to to utilize. Yeah, yeah the tech the tech is there. Um, so speaking and, about the like, tech, uh, yes. sorry, Carlos. Speaking about the tech. It feels like we can't have an episode without bringing up the usual buzzwords. So, <laughs> so this this journey towards digi- digitalization uh, in in the world of all the proliferation of IoT, um, how are some of these systems that were really essentially designed, sort of call it pre IoT, um, how has that changed the 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 outlook or the way? Is it still relevant? Did they have to make a U-turn in many cases or a, a adoption? Um, you look at, for example, and I have to mention it by name, Cepasop, that, that's built on top of uh, Ignition, for example, as a platform. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is really, how have these MES systems, uh, is, it, is it a concern? Is it um, Has it changed a lot um, in a world where these systems are very often designed pre-IoT and now we get all this uh, benefit of just the availability and access to data as one example um, uh, with IoT. How, how has that changed MES in the way that it is these systems are designed and integrated with the rest of business? Well, that's a... I think it's a bit unfair to ask me that. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a uh, vendor of software, but... Um, or a producer of software so i'm just a user so but what i've seen is that a lot of companies you know, i think lenny talked about the monolithic mes right so a lot of companies are these big tech monoliths mm. 
that is like a tanker that takes 20 kilometers to make a turn, mm. right? Um, so the technology, the MES technology and the way that MES technology providers approach the situation is not by changing the inherent technology. What they have done, however, is to open it up more so that you can get alternative sources of information in, that it can accommodate alternative protocols like MQTT uh, coming from the, from the IoT environment. So they've adopted kind of the peripherals around the technology so that you can get more information into it. Yeah. Remember, if you talk to any technology company or any technology provider, people that actually make software, they want to make software that they can sell. And I mean, the case in point is back in the day with DCS, DCS vendors were the last to adopt OPC because they did not want to open it up until the market forced them yeah, that's a great example. to open it up. Hmm. All right. So they didn't want to go the OPC route because, you know, and they had, it's a safety concern and it's integrity concern, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah. the market forced them. Now, the same thing is happening with MES, SCADA, MES, you know, vendors are, they saying, well, People are going to start connecting stuff in here. And if we don't make the necessary tools available for them to easily integrate, they may go outside and look for something else. But have they changed architecture in a major way? No. Not a lot that I could see. Right, and then you have your new kind of entrance into the market, into the traditional MES market, mm. and those are your IoT type of providers, mm. and they come from a IoT world, and they're building tool, they're building IoT tools that can do MES functions. Yeah. But the traditional MES guys. They're not going to be changing very soon, if you ask me, right? Um, except by making, opening up, you know, allowing more protocols, making it easier to integrate into a unified architecture. Yeah. And a lot of them still, and, and it's unfortunate, but a lot of them still want to be the unified architecture. Yeah. Where, in fact, they are not. Correct. And and I think it's one of the questions that people ask Walker, again, just going back to that about what software is this thing? And sometimes there's no right answer for that, unfortunately, at this point. Yeah. And it might be a Yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry, we, we, we're running almost at an hour, but I really want to just touch on one more little technical thing. And I think Yaku's got a, a few things to ask about Aerotron. Um, I just want to, I know you said, do your homework before you choose and uh, OEE or MES application, fit for purpose, fit for yes. industry. I just very quickly want to also talk about 
there's also a, a thing where you need to choose your metrics to industry. Now, yes. we, we all know OEE, we all know, you know, the, the kind of, it's all about utilization of the equipment, the quality of the product and the performance of that machine to make up your OEE metric. But for certain industries, if I talk about continuous industry, a little bit more mining, not all three of the pillars of OEE necessarily makes quite a lot of sense to make a decision now. And one of those, one of those components is obviously the quality component. That's always a tricky thing to try and get right yes. in continuous industry. Now, you, you're very modest, Harold, because um, you're actually also a, a publisher of a white paper <laughs> for the Mises Foundation <laughs> around the, the time and state measurement. But I think that might yes. be a whole with podcast with maybe you and Dr. Quivis on, on another podcast just to explain yeah. that. But I, I just wanted to get the listeners to also just think about what is these metrics or KPIs that they want to measure. And for, for different industries, they will be different. You know, you're going to struggle to try and you know, have a cap that's going to fit all. Correct. Yeah. So, and that's why I say, what's the intent of what you're trying to do? And how are you going to measure whether or not you're going to get the correct results? Correct. And, you know, if you, and sometimes, and especially now in COVID, you know, we, we used to make three SKUs. Right or stock keeping units, right yeah. products, um, but now we've added five mm. because we're also now making hand sanitizers and these yep. uh, dispensers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we we've doubled the number of stock keeping units, the number, the types of raw materials and the types of products that we have in our stores, as well as the types of processes used to actually make that how do you disseminate that into your factory right because now we're not talking about you know we're focusing on throughput and throughput is the measure we also now have to start looking at right so what's my what is my change over time yeah um you know because we're now looking at product mix so we're actually going to make the most profitable product for the demand, so if there's a demand for the most profitable product, the rest of the products can actually be a bit late, right? So we're not going to meet the available to promise for those products, but the most profitable one, we are going to make sure that we meet the available to promise times for those because it makes us the most money. So your, so it's not about throughput. If we have to change over a lot and lose throughput, it's okay because we're making the most profitable product as opposed to previously, um, you know, we only looked at throughput because if we made product, we could sell it. Now we're making product, but we're also making the most profitable product. So when the business environment change, what you measure needs to change and Talking about that, you know, the, the time and state is also one of those things where you take that into consideration. Mm. So the measurement changes based on the market forces out there or potentially. Yeah. So in, in, in a nutshell, you need to be able to pivot very quickly around those different things. So the, and these days, again, technology is to our savior. Space is not an issue anymore. 
we can now historize more raw data than we ever was possible at faster rates. So get that data in, start historizing stuff, start getting those real-time data points in, and it will allow you in the future, potentially again, yeah. who knows, next year we might need to make 220 SKUs, yeah. but the data is yeah. available to pivot very quickly around those new KPIs that you need to measure. And the ability to be agile to do it quickly. Yeah, yeah. yeah 100%. You know, cool. And we can all hope that uh, we will start, we will end 2020 release two very soon. <laughs> And yeah. start really start in 2021. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> but, um, just just in closing, the uh, you mentioned there's a lot of good tech out there. There's a lot of good technology available from a lot of different vendors. Um, uh, the tech is available. Um, I think the people in our industry, the individuals, we are very resilient. We are very resourceful. Um, I know your team at at Eritron, You've you, you you're you're a great leader. And a good educator, and, and that's why you, in your role at Nisa, you've surrounded yourself with, with a great team. Is there top three, maybe, I don't know, things, uh, observations um, around specific applications or trends, or just your top three things that you're excited about for the MES space um, over the next couple of months? Maybe we've touched on them already, but maybe in closing, if that's okay. Yeah. So, what excites me for for the future is the ability to start predicting things. Okay, yeah. so looking at you know that early anomaly detection, um, equipment failure prediction, um, process performance forecasting. That tech is something that is becoming cheaper. Right and more user friendly. Yeah. So you know, historically it used to be only a data and data scientist could actually do it, but they've built some tech that actually takes away the work of the data scientist and just gives you the results, consumes yeah. the information, gives you. I I love that. Um, the other yeah. thing is the the popular or the view of a unified architecture is becoming real. So as Lenny said, part of the MISO education, we talk about manufacturing 2.0 and a manufacturing services bus. Um, bringing all these things, tying them together without ripping and replacing any technology. Now, it was always kind of a bit of a pipe dream because the tech wasn't available. The tech is now almost there, right? So I won't say it's there 100%, but it's almost there. So those are two things that I've noticed and that actually excites me, is kind of seeing that manufacturing 2.0 architecture vision becoming a reality. Yeah. Cool. I like that. Um, you've done great work advocating MES um, and, and the value and, and the benefits. If those are the things that you're excited about, then we are as well. I know, I know last year, 2020, was obviously a very challenging year for everybody, and, and I know for you as well. Um, all the yep. best for this year. We definitely want to check in with you in a, in a couple of months. 
Uh, maybe what yeah. we'll do at the end of this year is we'll call you out factually on everything that you predicted and said and see if you were accurate or not. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll, we'd love to catch up with you in a, in a couple of months' time and just see how this year has unfolded and, and what we're sort of seeing in the industrial world and MES specifically. Thank you very much, uh, Jaku and Lenny. It was great chatting to you, uh, as always. And uh, thanks for the challenging questions. We call it thought-provoking. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, and I'm glad that uh, we actually, it's a podcast and not a, a video because, you know, I'm drenched in sweat now. So. <laughs> no, 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 we've stuck through all of that very comfortably. And, and if we can't rely on you for, for expert opinion, then I'm not sure who we're going to rely on. So thank you very much for that. All right. Pleasure, guys. Cool. Um, we, Khara, just by the way, last thing, if, if there are any specific links or anything that you want to share that you think will be helpful to our audience that we can attach to the podcast, please please send it over and we'll make sure to, to share those links. All right. Uh, we'll send over some stuff. Okay. Fantastic. Thank you. All right. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Cool, Lenny. That's our first podcast done for, for this year. I know we're kicking off the Future of series. I, I can't even recall which one to be starting off with. I think, oh, no, I'm not going to. Clarice, who's sort of the, uh, the, the the producer of the podcast, I think she'll be very unhappy if I, if I tell lies about yeah, which one. So have a listen for our Future of series, just covering, uh, like we mentioned, uh, brewing, food and beverage, water, wastewater, water. general manufacturing, water, water industry, not wastewater, water industry. Um, please be sure to listen out for those ones. And as always, thank you for listening. If you found this content valuable, let us know if you have any other suggestions that you think we should uh, and, and just people we should be speaking to also let us know and keep sharing and help us do a small little part and and just educating and informing our community. Yes, please drop those suggestions to podcasts at element8.co.za and we will try our very best to get those people on the show. Um, And as always, everybody, cheers. Thank you very much. Stay safe. Bye-bye.